For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ's first coming, his incarnation, and his second coming in glory at the end of history are deeply related. We've seen that in virtually every hymn and indeed in many of the readings tonight. They are locked into each other Sort of like two movements in one grand symphony. It's almost like there's one coming with two poles rather than two distinct comings. This is important. Turns out it's important for how we live. And our text, the text I just read, uh, which is a page or so back in your program, from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, it shows us this relationship and its implications quite vividly. So I want to look at this text under three headings, grace, education, and glory. First, then, the text, verse 11, Titus 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared. This is what has happened in the virgin birth. In the incarnation, the the enfleshment of the Son of God into our humanity. It is an appearing the text says, a coming, an advent, an unveiling, a manifestation. And the text says that it's an appearing. Jesus is an appearing of the grace of God. This is of immense significance, even though we are quite familiar with it. I mean, into this world, this world into which Jesus was born was a world thronging with religions. It was a world that was alien to this notion, which we take for granted, the notion of grace. Into this world of cause and effect and relentless, inexorable law. Into this world the pervasive and fundamental feature of which is death and disintegration. As Yeats says, things fall apart. The center cannot hold, and mere anarchy is loosed on the world into this world of law, of our own sin and failure and brokenness, into this world where our own resolutions don't last a half an hour. Where our own conscience tells us we fall short. Into this world, where the evidence is stacked against us, the defendants. Where all of our self-rationalizations finally don't work. Into this guilt-ridden world. Into this world where our hearts are battered. 
something unprecedented, something which cannot be assimilated to anything, something for which there are no categories happens, something of an eruption, a rupture in the middle of history, grace appears. And in this appearance, human existence is placed on a wholly new basis. Jesus does not come to modify things. He does not come to to make things somewhat better, to ameliorate things. He comes to make all things new. And that is called grace. And it's a completely stunning thing in the middle of human history. All the more so, I think, because we take it for granted. The things which it has unleashed on the world, many of which we've celebrated here tonight. The music alone should make a curious person want to investigate this event. Now, we think of the grace of God as his unmerited favor, and that is good. That's a good way to think of it as far as it goes. But something has happened in the history of the church. And grace has sort of become torn away, detached from the person of Christ. And so often we find that we think of grace as like a substance, like a thing, like a fluid with which we can be filled. But this text tells us that grace is not simply a thing. It's not even simply a disposition in God. The text is not saying God thought he would be gracious and do something nice for us. That's not the force of grace has appeared. There's an arrival, as I said before, an interruption here. Grace is that which has made itself known in the descent the steep descent of the Son of God into your humanity and mine. This text virtually identifies grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodied visibility. He's the appearing of this grace of God. Or as Titus puts it in the next chapter, he is the appearance of the love and kindness of God the Father in history. This is grace then. And what it does is it stoops down to where we are. It gets inside our misery, underneath our alienation and our despair. It bears our violence. It heals us from the inside out. It comes down in the flesh of Jesus formed in the womb of the Virgin. Notice the second half of verse 11 in the text tells us that this grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people. There's a great impulse embedded in what we celebrate here tonight, the incarnation. And it's a missionary impulse. It shows us that God himself is the great missionary because he decides to cross this divide. To span this gulf in the person of his own son, he comes to get us. 
In a sense, Christmas is Jesus Christ running after you. He comes to seek and to save the lost. It turns out that this rupture, this eruption of grace, is a rupture which mends, which reverses the course of the cursed, barren order of things. This grace, concretely visible in this Jesus of Nazareth, means salvation. That's a word which is also a rich word which we can shrink down a bit. It means forgiveness, but it also means wholeness, well-being, everlasting life, peace, shalom, triumph. Salvation is now made available to the ends of the earth. It's genuinely held out and offered to all men and women in all nations. And so the text is saying that the salvation which Christ has brought is universal in range. Make no mistake about it. The appearance of this baby ends in a cosmic triumph. It ends in the whole creation being restored, beautified, and made glorious. That's the grace which has appeared. The second point here is education, by which I'm not talking about education as we might normally think of it. In in verse 12, we're told that this grace which has appeared is training us. And training here is a very famous and much studied Greek word. It means instruction or education. The grace of God educates us. And it carries with it the idea of correction and discipline and the like. But what's, what's crucial to see here is that it's, it's not the Greek philosophers. It's not even the liberal arts themselves which provide the training. The tutor in this school is the grace of God. The grace which has appeared in Jesus Christ is the grace, the text says, the grace which trains or educates us for virtue. Grace doesn't simply appear and then leave us where we are. You know, it is the incarnation which educates us. And what it educates us to do, you can see in verse 12, and I'll make a couple of quick observations there. Notice first the time in which this training is occurring. It's seen at the end of verse 12. In this present age... This present age or this age is not a reference to one generation or one century or one time period. It's a reference to the whole sweep of human history. Between Christ's first coming and his second coming. It's the whole sweep of things. It's the very existence of this time, this present age invaded, invaded by this appearing of grace, which enables something called Christian ethics, Christian education to arise. Secondly, notice the text says it trains us to renounce ungodliness. This is a fierce sentiment. It almost seems un 
complete renunciation of all that's contrary to godliness. The great uh, 5th century church father, Chrysostom, comments, he says this, he says, See here the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying, renouncing. This implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion. Here it is. The grace of God has appeared calling you to hate and to renounce and to separate yourself from evil. The text goes on to speak of worldly passions, by which it means desires or appetites, for we are all desiring creatures. We are all loving creatures, creatures with loves. But our desires and our appetites are disordered. They're ordered to the present age, to the present world. They're determined by this age. The text says you have to renounce that as well. You need a reordering of desire. Now we say a lot here, rightly, about being a life-affirming, world-affirming people, celebrating the goodness of life. We're doing that tonight. Engaging the joy and the beauty of cultural life. Christianity is profoundly a life-affirming faith. I mean, after all, if God himself has been born of a human mother and become a human being and lived a fully human life, then our human existence as such has been hallowed. And it has been given an enormous dignity. So among other things, the incarnation means matter matters. Stuff matters. Rocks matter. Flowers matter. Everything matters. People and their cultural lives matter. But notice, we must not lose sight of the fact that in affirming the good, we must also renounce all that mangles the good creation and distorts us as human beings in the image of God. And that means we have to be educated graciously in this school of renunciation. Inasmuch as this world, this age is fallen, given to a kind of futility, bent, marked by death, inasmuch as that's true, we are against the world for the sake of the world. We might put it this way, if we, if we think of different forms of Christian thought, we might say liberals, Christian liberals are for the world. Christian fundamentalists are against the world. We are against the world for the sake of the world. That's what Jesus was. So, There's a class. It's the introductory class in the school of virtue. The headmaster is the grace of God which has appeared. And the introductory class is entitled simply, No. We must say no. We must renounce ungodliness and disordered passions. And note well, it's not the law. It's not law which teaches us to say no here. That's the problem with every other approach to this other than the one that has appeared in Jesus Christ. 
Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Try harder. Be more disciplined. You know, impose more rules. It's not law which teaches us. It's grace. Glorious, free, having appeared in Jesus Christ. That grace instructs. And it says, deny ungodliness. But of course, ethics is not simply denial. It continues, and you can see in the middle of 12, we're trained by the same grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I just want to pick out the word godly here. It's a term which now in our culture carries so much... Well, if I say the word godly in certain companies, it carries a kind of moralistic freight. It's certainly not a word that has a lot of sheen and glory and hipness to it. You hear the word godly and you might think dull or boring or some kind of rule-keeping grimness. But godly is a one-word summary of Christian behavior. Think about what this word means. It says, now that grace has appeared, that God has become incarnate, we are to live as reflections of God himself. We are to image him and reflect him back to our neighbors and to the world. You are to be an image of divine goodness and mercy and grace in human form because that goodness and mercy and grace has taken human form in Jesus. The word Christian means, of course, little Christ's. And so godliness is a glorious and it's an exhilarating thing. It begins with renunciation and it moves on to the positive formation of virtue. So again, what has taught us in this school? It is the training and the education of the grace of God which above and beyond all of our hopes has appeared in the world. And the grace which teaches us this It leads the way. Think of the very birth of Christ itself. That's what verse 11 is primarily talking about when it talks about the grace of God has appeared. It is one majestic act of divine renunciation. That is what Christmas is. It is the Son of God stripping Himself and laying aside His prerogatives and His glory and emptying Himself out to take the form of a servant a slave, to renounce his equality with God, considering it not even a thing to be contested or grasped. And this renunciation, which we sing about here, is at the same time, in the life which follows it, one long, unspeakably costly act of obedience to the Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. Obedience unto death, even death on a cross. The very logic then of grace, the logic of Christmas, should educate us into this school of virtue. And since it's Christmas Eve, I want to illustrate this by one aspect of the grace which has appeared, namely the virgin birth. The Apostle John, he can think like this. In his first epistle, he says, We know that everyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning. 
That seems clear enough. Those who have experienced rebirth cannot remain in sin. They will make some progress in the Christian life, albeit halting. But the reason John thinks this is very instructive. He says, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning because he who was born of God keeps him. He who was born of God is a reference to Jesus' virgin birth into your humanity and mine. The one who was born of the virgin keeps those who are born again. To paraphrase Augustine, he was born of Mary that you might be born of God. And for the Apostle John, this logic means we cannot continue in sin because we're now being educated in the grace that's appeared in the one who was born of Mary. And this brings me to the last point, the glory. If you look at the beginning of verse 13, it says we live in this present age as those waiting for our blessed hope. Christmas is full of wonder. It does wonderful things. But you'll notice it doesn't do everything we need in a certain sense. It thrusts us out of the old world. The grace of God has appeared, but not yet fully into the new world into the new creation. It is set in motion. It is sure to come. But we live in a sort of in-between time and the whole of our lives is a kind of waiting for. And thus we're to be radically oriented toward the future. We are to yearn for Advent to be fully consummated. That's the point I made earlier and we see in many of these hymns about the two comings being locked together. To celebrate this and not long for the coming of Jesus at the end of the age is to miss the heart and soul of what Advent is. We are waiting for this blessed hope. It's not enough for us to simply engage in renunciation and the pursuit of virtue. All of that is shaped by waiting. So if the first class is entitled no, the first question is, what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? What time is it? This text says it's the time of this present fallen age. It's the time of waiting. It's the time of yearning. It's the time of longing for our blessed hope. There are no ethics without this hope. Christian behavior from the beginning to the end is an ethics of yearning for the new creation. It's very important to see this. The grace of God trains us for an end. We ought to ask ourselves, what is that end? It's not simply an ideal. It's not even ideal Christian character. It's the end of all things. The end of history. It's the resurrection of the dead. It's the vindication of the martyrs. It's the restoration of the whole creation. The restoration of all things, especially humanity, in the glory of God. And without this end, we do just have a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And if we don't connect this eruption in the middle of history, which we celebrate tonight, to this end, then we've missed what it means to be students in this school. Notice in the text there's a repetition of the word appeared or appearing in verse 11 and in verse 13. 
Paul does this for us in this text. He whose divinity was veiled in the appearance of grace shall be revealed fully as our God and Savior in the appearance of glory. This is our blessed hope, and it's blessed because it's certain. And it's certain because Christmas means it has already begun. It has already set in motion. Grace, education, and glory. They're a summary of the deep logic of Christian behavior. And so we should give thanks and praise to God for the grace which has appeared. The grace which trains and educates us in virtue. And the grace which guarantees our glorious hope. Amen.